You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thanks for joining our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. I'm Daryl West, Vice President of Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution and co-author with Brookings President John Allen of a book about AI entitled Turning Point Policymaking in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Digital technology has transformed virtually every aspect of human existence. We have online education, telemedicine, remote work, and e-commerce, among other activities. Many of us spend hours a day online communicating with other people, reading or watching materials online, or engaging in digital transactions. Yet, there are a number of problems as we make this transition to a digital world. Technology has divided us, fueled misinformation and disinformation, and accentuated inequality. Although digital tools make our lives easier and more convenient in a number of respects, they also challenge our privacy, security, and personal activities. All of these developments raise interesting questions about the future of technology and how we can mitigate various problems. To discuss these important questions, we are pleased to be joined today by a distinguished leader. Congressman Ro Khanna represents the Silicon Valley area. He has taught economics at Stanford and served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Commerce in the Obama administration. And he now has a new book out from Simon & Schuster entitled Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. So Congressman, welcome to our Brookings Tech Tank podcast. It's an honor to be on. I appreciated the framing of the issue up front. Well, before we get to your book, I just want to learn a little bit more about your background. So you have a fascinating story about being born into an Indian immigrant family. And I'm just curious, how did this upbringing affect your worldview? Well, as you pointed out, my parents immigrated to the United States shortly after the Immigration and Reform Act was passed in 1965. My father came to study engineering. My mother came shortly thereafter. I was born in Philadelphia in 1976. My grandfather had spent four years in jail during the Gandhi independence movement in the 1940s. So I would say it impacted me two ways. One, it gave me a understanding of the struggles that people have had to endure for freedom and for justice. When I look at my grandfather's story and I look at all of the things that have to happen for my parents to be able to immigrate to the United States, the reforms within the United States. But second, I grew up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and I had a lot of people who believed in me, helped me, whether that was Little League coaches who put up with me not being a a good hitter, or whether it was teachers or neighbors. And I think it gave me a real belief in the promise of this country and in the decency of this country. And I still think about my childhood in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and rooting for the Flyers and the Eagles and Sixers and folks we I grew up with often in orienting who I am. Well, those are great stories. And I have to admit, I too played Little League when I was growing up, and I was such a terrible player. It was one of the things that motivated me to go into academia because I knew <laughs> I was not going to survive based on my physical attributes. I would have to rely on my mental abilities. Well, you, you but, probably didn't have when I used to go to play, they used to say, watch the bunt or something. So, you know, because that they'd always call the bunt. Uh, but it was great. You know, I enjoyed the Little League. In fact, a digression, but someone had a scorecard from. When I was playing on a team at 12 years old, I think we won two games and lost 10. 
somebody tweeted it out and it was one of the best tweets. If I don't buy NFTs, but if I did, I would buy an NFT of that tweet. So that's a great background for our subject matter today. So the title of your book is Dignity in a Digital Age. And that title implies that we don't have sufficient dignity right now. So why are you focused on dignity and what problems do you see? Well, every person, in my view, has intrinsic dignity that we in this country uh, believe that every person has, by virtue of being a human being, should be treated with respect. And the question is, what does it mean to treat someone with respect in a digital age? I argue that it has two aspects, that we have to treat them with respect when it comes to their economic prospects, and we have to treat them as respect as citizens. On the economic prospects, one of the challenges is that a lot of the wealth generation and economic opportunities of the digital economy have been concentrated. $11 trillion of market cap in my district and surrounding areas, the most wealth generation perhaps ever in any place in human history. And yet so much of the country faced deindustrialization, uh, saw globalization not working for them. We're told you have to move, your kids have to move to have any prospect. That is not respecting communities' dignity, people's dignity in providing pathways to productive activity in the modern economy. How do we change that? And then second, many people have been manipulated on these online platforms. Their data taken, targeted, and sent subtle messages, not being equal citizens in sort of democratic deliberation. And the second half of the book details how we can reform some of the digital media platforms to value uh, our equality as citizens and to really promote deliberation. Emphasize in the book is these geographic disparities, which you started to get into. So we certainly see big disparities in economic prosperity between the coasts and the heartland. Now, remote work may help in providing opportunities for people living in the heartland, like they can work in the tech sector without living in Silicon Valley. Yet you clearly are correct that much of our current prosperity is centered on certain states, in particular metropolitan areas, and that there are many other parts of America that are being left behind. How can we close those geographic disparities? We need to do a better job of having economic development strategies for communities that have been left out. Most in the news, Intel is $20 billion investment in Columbus, Ohio, New Albany, Ohio, is an example of what can happen. I mean, that's going to create 3,000 manufacturing jobs, 7,000 construction jobs. We ought to be passing policies like the CHIPS Act, which will help create more semiconductor fabs in the heartland, in the South, so that more people have access to participating in a technology economy. It's harder when you're looking at rural communities. And that's why one of the things I advocate is sort of a hub and spoke model, which is if you can create in mid-sized cities, sort of tech hubs, tech centers around the unique assets of that region, then you can have with remote work and the possibility of commuting in maybe one or two days a week, activity in rural communities as well for the 25 million digital jobs that we will have. It's important for people to realize that 25 million digital jobs by 2025, more than manufacturing and construction combined, and these jobs pay twice the median wage in this country. We can't just have those jobs concentrated on coasts or in large urban centers.
So part of our digital divide involves infrastructure and the fact that some people either don't have access to broadband or they don't have access to high-speed broadband that allows them to take advantage of the various benefits of the emerging digital economy. President Biden, of course, along with people in Congress, passed this landmark infrastructure bill, and it's going to devote at least $68 billion to closing the digital divide and improving broadband access to underrepresented Americans. How would you like to see that infrastructure bill implemented so that we finally can actually close that digital divide? Well, it's an extraordinary step forward. I mean, it can really provide not just internet access, but affordable internet access across this country. The allocation of that, a large part of it will be through the Department of Commerce, and they ought to work with whether it's private companies or municipalities, whoever can achieve that last mile or last few miles of internet access the best and make that investment. And then some of the money that went to the FCC should be used to provide credits for those who can't afford broadband. So there are two different issues. For some, it's an affordability issue. For some, it's an access issue. But when I talk to the experts, they say that the 60-some billion should go a long way. It may not get quite to 100%, but it can put us in the high 90s, which would be much better than where we are now, where 20 to 25% don't have access to affordable high-speed internet. So another issue you raise in the book is automation and the dangers that this poses for many workers. How do you see automation developing as the digital economy unfolds? And how should current workers think about this issue and what should they be doing? Well, there are two aspects to automation. One is the surveillance aspect of automation. I mean, as bad as it may be to have a human boss, it may be worse to have an algorithmic boss. And you see uh, a lot of workers in conditions where it's really machines that are telling them to stay on task, to do their assignments. So what I argue is we need more than ever worker empowerment in making decisions of the use of technology in ensuring that they have dignity in the workplace and aren't just subject as appendages or accessories to robots or being dictated to by by robots. The second aspect of technology is that it's routinizing a lot of the routine work can be automated. And that doesn't mean that we're going to go to some jobless future. I mean, you look at Amazon, they still hire almost a million workers and you still have huge demand, actually shortage of truck drivers. There are a lot of jobs that still require human beings. And it's very hard, by the way, to automate all of the skills, even of what someone does with their hands of picking things, moving things. Those are things that uh, robotics still hasn't figured out. But what we have to figure out is as simple routine tasks become automated, how do we make sure that people are adding value in controlling those machines, have not just the skill set for it, but have job descriptions that allow them to make a contribution in light of the technology. And so I think it's not that we're moving to a jobless future, it's that we're moving to a different job future, and we ought to be preparing for that. Yeah, and clearly workers do need to be thinking about workforce development. I know there are a number of employers who are investing more in that area, and I think that's absolutely crucial as we move forward. So at Brookings, we identify problems, but we also like to talk about solutions uh, to those problems. And in your book, you actually present a number of agenda items of things that you think we should do. And one of the central ideas that I found fascinating in your book is this notion of what you call progressive capitalism. So what is progressive capitalism and how can that help us with some of these tech-related issues that you discuss in the book? 
So progressive capitalism simply is a sense that markets are important. And the reason that markets are important is that they respect people's freedom. If you want to have a transaction with someone else, that is something you ought to be free to do. And you shouldn't need the entire collective's permission to do every transaction as that would be restrictive. It would restrict your own freedom. It would restrict innovation. But for you to be able to have these kind of transactions, you need to have some basic capabilities. And this is heavily reliant on Amartya Sen's work and Martha Nussbaum's work and John Rawls's work about what is it that we need people to have. I argue you need healthcare, you need basic education, you need nutrition. So if you can have those basic capabilities developed, then we can have a chance in a market economy. And the argument as it relates to technology is that we need to be equipping people for the success in an economy that is largely influenced and on technology platforms. So you need the basics of healthcare, nutrition, but you also need the right kind of education, including a computer science background and and just to expose to technology as we expose people to reading and writing. And you need job opportunities so that you can actually participate in a market economy. And, you know, that is what I call progressive capitalism. You also call for an Internet Bill of Rights, and that's a, a great concept. Can you tell us what that Bill of Rights should include? What are its components? What is it that you would like to see happen? At a very simple level, an Internet Bill of Rights means that when you go online, uh, you should know that you're not being taken advantage of. You should not have your data taken from you and then used to manipulate outcomes you don't want. For example, if you didn't want your data used to elect someone president, you shouldn't have that happen without your consent. And so one of the principles of the Internet Bill of Rights, the fundamental principle is that you should have to consent before any of your data is used. Now, that is not a panacea because there are ways that people can derive profiles without the reliance of your data. Often people consent to things without really thinking them through. They just are tired of cookies popping up. But so I have other principles about data minimization. Companies shouldn't be using data beyond what they actually need for a functional purpose. The company is having to be good fiduciaries of data. But the central idea is when you go online, you shouldn't be exploited or manipulated. So there's a lot of action percolating on Capitol Hill in the antitrust area. Just in the last few weeks, we've seen several different pieces of legislation that have been introduced. Some of them are basically suggesting the large platforms should not be allowed to advantage their own products over those of competitors. Others call for stronger merger and acquisitions review by the Department of Justice and putting more staffing and budget to enable tougher oversight. There are lots of ideas out there. What is your agenda in terms of competition policy? How big of a problem is bigness in the tech sector? And what should we do about this? Well, I write about this extensively in Chapter 6, and let me just give you the high-level principles. I don't think bigness of its, in and of itself is the problem. If something is having a network or succeeding and is just big, that may be a, a perfectly reasonable or network effects or economies of scale. The problem becomes when you have anti-competitive behavior. So if you have a platform that is saying certain sellers shouldn't be on or certain sellers were going to charge them more to sell their products than we're gonna charge for selling our own products. That is the anti-competitive behavior that you want to regulate as antitrust violations. 
but there's a bigger line of complexity. It's not that simple. Let's say Apple computers, you have the app store and they say, well, we don't want to have Parler on because Parler doesn't reflect our values. It seems harsh to say, well, you have to have on every potential seller. So what I argue is that the default should be that you can't discriminate against sellers. You have platforms that are largely open, but you should be able to overcome that with a presumption if you can show that it's inconsistent with your fundamental values or something is going to advance consumer welfare and there has to be that balancing test. I would argue that right now there isn't sufficient enforcement on these big tech companies. We need to do a better job to ferret out some of the anti-competitive behavior, but I don't think we should just take away all discretion that they have over their own platforms. So earlier you mentioned the CHIPS Act, and of course this issue of computer chip manufacturing is getting a lot of attention these days. There have been calls for reshoring or nearshoring where we bring chip production back to the United States. And you mentioned there's gonna be expanded capabilities in Columbus, Ohio. Many of our chips now are made in Taiwan and South Korea, and those are vulnerable areas given the neighborhoods in which they reside. So what, how big of a problem is this chip shortage and what is it that the CHIPS Act would do that you think would make a difference in this area? It's a big problem. Only 12% of chips are manufactured in the United States. We need chips for everything. We need chips for the phones that we're using to have this conversation. We need chips for our cars. We need chips for almost every electronic device. And we have a huge shortage of chips because we're too reliant on Taiwan. We're too reliant on South Korea. Because of COVID, we had huge shipping shortages of those products coming to the United States. And we suffered the consequences. And we should be particularly concerned given China's stated objective is the reunification with Taiwan. I mean, obviously, we need to make sure we do everything to prevent China from invading Taiwan and make that absolutely clear. That is a bright line that they can never cross. We also need to do more in helping our semiconductor production in this country. Intel took an amazing step, calling it Silicon Heartland and putting this factory, this fab for the first time in the Midwest outside Columbus. The CHIPS Act would provide $52 billion to partner with companies and universities to allow them to expand their fabs, to allow them to increase their research and development money, to increase their hiring of individuals, and really would help with the capital costs of a lot of factories in the United States. So you mentioned China, and of course, that raises the issue of there's this ongoing battle between whose values are going to dominate on the Internet and in the digital world at large. Is it going to be democratic values or are there going to be authoritarian values that take over? What can we do to promote democratic values on the Internet and democratic values in the digital world at large? First, we have to lead in the technology. We need to make sure we're the ones designing the leading AI. We're the ones designing quantum computing. We're the ones designing the next generation of, of encryption, of blockchain. Because if we're not designing the technology, then we can't embed our values. Let me give you an example with artificial intelligence. There's leading work at MIT that I talk about at some length about having AI without data, without needing data. When you have a kid, you don't give them 5,000 pictures of a dog to understand what a dog is. The human mind is more sophisticated than that. If we can develop that next generation of AI, then we can better respect people's privacy and, and integrity of their data. If China develops it and they don't care about the privacy or respecting people's right to their own data, then we have a real challenge. So 
We want to develop the technology, lead, and then export it to the rest of the world and also be inclusive in our values. The one thing I would say is right now, probably a problem is a lot of the architecture is being designed by Silicon Valley software developers who arguably have more of a say on the platforms we're on than the lawmakers. And that those software developers aren't exactly diverse, reflecting country. They exclude a lot of rural America. They exclude a lot of the Midwest and South. They exclude a lot of people of color and certainly women. And so we've got to also have the people designing the digital architecture be more diverse. And it does seem like we are at a delicate time in terms of our relationship with China, just because on the one hand, we're all worried about security and military considerations and just the rise of authoritarian values in several places around the world. But on the other hand, many of our electronic products, our prescription drugs, many manufacturing items are still made in China. So how do we navigate that balance in terms of the relationship with China? We ought to develop our productive capacity here. Now, it's unrealistic to say that all global supply chains are going to be brought to the United States. One thing we should look at is ally shoring. So to see how much of our global supply chains can be in ally countries like Japan, India, Australia, South Korea, so that we're not dependent as much as we currently are on China, to see how much of the critical supply can be brought back to the United States, certainly when it comes to semiconductors, certainly when it comes to medical equipment. I mean, we saw that we were dependent on even basic medical equipment during the pandemic, certainly when it comes to key medicines and pharma manufacturing, and when it comes to critical electronics manufacturing. So how do we build that capacity in the United States? The pandemic, in my view, opened a lot of our eyes at, at the dangers of having uh, global supply chains that left us vulnerable to external shocks. Now, those are all terrific points, and it, it is going to take us a while to redevelop the supply chains, but these are issues we definitely need to address. The last issue I'd like to raise with you is in your book, you talk about the importance of democratizing digital innovation. And I know there are kind of different aspects of that, but how should we go about democratizing innovation? How can we take advantage of all the talent that is out there, both in the United States and around the world. I meant it in two ways. Kids in my district are so optimistic about the future. And I want to make sure that that's available in other parts of the country as well. You shouldn't have to grow up in a place and think, uh, I don't have the prospects to prosperity or to generate wealth or to create new ideas and products unless I move. And so democratizing innovation means that kids, whether they're growing up in rural America or black and brown communities, should have the same opportunities as kids growing up in, in my district. That doesn't mean that they all should become coders. What a boring world. But it does mean that they should have the opportunities of modern wealth generation that can sustain a lot of different types of businesses, whether they're comic book businesses or restaurants in a community. And the book really at the heart is about creating these opportunities for modern prosperity without cultural displacement, saying you could live in your hometown, be rooted in your hometown, but still participate in the new economy. And the new economy hasn't worked for so many people in the country. And I think they've been patronizingly lectured saying, go move. And many of them don't want to move. And we really need to do a better job of saying how they can participate, or at least their kids can participate in this new economy. And then finally, it means Everyone recognizes that these digital platforms are having a huge say in our democracy. They're the modern public sphere in many ways. And isn't it 
problematic if the architects of that modern public sphere, the decision makers are all in Silicon Valley. That's why I think you have such arguments on the conservative side saying all this liberal bias and people of color saying now these platforms aren't inclusive or these platforms are sexist. Uh, we, we can't give so much power, uh, frankly, to people in my district to design the architecture of the modern town hall. We need to include many more people in that process. So from both an economic perspective and a citizenship perspective, we have involved many more Americans in participating in the digital economy and designing the digital architecture. Well, this is a fascinating book that I highly recommend. It is called Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. It is a great read, and you will learn valuable lessons along the way. So I want to thank Congressman Khanna for sharing his thoughts with us today. At Brookings, we write regularly about digital technology, and you can find more information on our Brookings Tech Tank blog located at brookings.edu. So thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you very much. And as you know, I cite a number of the Brookings reports, so I appreciate the work you do. Well, thank you very much, and we appreciate you taking the time given everything else that is going on in D.C. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.